वेलकम टू सिंटॉक द सिंटॉकर्स अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द स्टिल एंड मूविंग विल थिंक अबाउट मूवमेंट्स परसेप्शन इमेजेस फोटोग्राफ्स मूवमेंट्स एंड द ज्योमेट्री ऑफ द फिजिकल स्पेस अराउंड अस इज मूविंग फिल्म एंड एरे ऑफ स्टिल स्नैपशॉट्स is anything still how do still photographs automatically imply motion how is motion information extracted can 3d spaces be reconstructed purely robotically from 2d images why do we need two eyes what lies in between the still and moving images can camera camera relationships be deduced from images is dream the only cinema that we knew for a very long time what is the future of still images and will everything get animated in real time in the very long run we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today orko datto he is a visual artist and lives in calcutta Dr. Venu Madhav Govindu is at the Department of Electrical Engineering at IISC in Bengaluru. He works in the area of computer vision. In addition, he also has an interest in history and political economy of modern India. And Dr. Rajan Kurey Krishnan, he teaches in Ambedkar University in Delhi and writes in Tamil and English on films, politics and culture. Um so Rajan why don't you set the ball rolling with you um why this fascination with moving images is what is it and um, do you think of that on the opposite side of the still image or something still um, or or is the world or universe in general somewhat abstractly speaking of course and we'll make it more rigid and granular maybe going in the direction of we know as we go along um what what is it and is there an interrelationship with still image well uh i should begin by saying that we should think of the distinction between what is still and what is moving as a difference of degree rather than difference of kind hmm there is anything that is absolutely still uh existentially speaking if you want things are in a flux things move a lot of I'm, what i say is of course drawn from uh bergson uh but i completely subscribe to his idea in the sense that bergson's own intention was to uh bring philosophy uh in conversation not just in conversation but in in consonance with science so he postulates that everything is moving 
So that's not a statement about images. It's a statement about the world. So all matter is moving. You mean it in that sense? Like all matter is in, is in a state of flux? That's or, right. Or that's where right. would you place uh, yeah. the image vis-a-vis -vis reality? See, the, the image is the, uh, the cornerstone. Now, cornerstone is not a good metaphor. It is the most important kind of an idea. Uh, what is it? It is the most important concept mm -hmm. of Bergson in the sense. The image for him is something less than a thing, but something more than a mere idea or representation. Right. So, so image the is the in between of uh, you know, what is uh, matter and uh, what is mind. His book is known as you know, Matter and matter Memory. And memory. Matter yeah. and Memory. So the, the idea is that the image is what constitutes both matter and memory. So he constitutes. has... Yes. In the sense that uh, the human body, uh, uh, you know, uh, produces a split in the sense that it segregates virtual action from the actual or real action. So the virtual action is what constitutes uh, memory. So th these are made of images and these images constitute a memory not just memory, the very cognition of uh, the species is uh, due to this segregation. It helps us to locate ourselves in the field of action. So we should rather think of, uh, you know, the, what we see as the speciality around us as something constituted by our sensorium. And, the, so it, and, and it is cognition which is image-mediated. Right. I mean, the image is the, uh, the mainstay of the whole story. The image is what goes either way into aggregating into matter or uh, composing themselves into uh, various notes of memory. Uh, so it is a major intervention of sorts, uh, you know, very post-Kantian and so on. But uh, he makes this uh, intervention because of whatever was particle physics at that time, I, I would think. And uh, my own kind of uh, fascination with this idea increased when you read about the Large Hydron Collider and uh, the neutrino, neutrino observatory that are, that, that are being set up. So these uh, particles like neutrino, for instance, is hard to detect, but it is postulated. But they, it is very hard to say what they are. They are they, they penetrate everything. It's a different kind they of thing. Change. It doesn't interact. Yeah. So. so these kinds of particles, which now physics thinks, uh, are very important for constituting matter as such. So this is these are the things that would very well go into Bergsonian idea of image that uh, constitutes matter. So, so let's let's come back to this question of still and moving. That's right. Because, you know, I think we have some sense of at least how you or Bergson and others may have thought about the image between the representation and reality. That's right. But what about this movement business? See, what is still is just what we 
extract from this flux. It's a perceptual effect. Huh? So, that, so there is no such thing as still. That's right. Uh, I mean, it's a very commonsensical. It's not even very philosophical in the sense that the still is very <laughs> relative, right? But mm. uh, you, are, you are in the train, you are in the flight. I mean, you do, you think that this is not moving, what is in front of you, but the whole flight is moving. So you are in the train that you are thinking you are st- yes, that's sitting still, but you are moving. So there is nothing like that is not moving that is possible. So both in a in a cosmic scale and microscopic level, things are moving, things are changing. But for example, and we'll we'll get into other areas. If we look yeah. at cinema or films, that's right. Is that an array of uh, snapshots? That's right, definitely. Because it no. can be constructed uh, that way. There. The contribution here that, or rather a sort of breakthrough that Deleuze makes, uh, you know, uh, uh, almost like 80 years after Bergson wrote, uh, Deleuze points to the problem within Bergson's two books. Because later, Bergson thought, uh, in creative evolution, he called the perceptual world we have uh, is like cinematographic illusion. So Deleuze speaks on that and he says, Bergson forgot his own invention of moment image. The sense, the cinematograph is not illusion. It is actually a certain re-rendering of moment. It's motion capture of sorts. What we now know as motion capture, I'm sure Venu would Say more on that. Venu, where are, where are you on this? And I will get to some of your questions, but on this somewhat simplistic, and it's not a straightforward question, but is, is, is a moving image an array or some kind of an integration of a lot of still images? I know it can be constructed that way, and you know, people like Orko work in areas of that kind, but mathematically or whatever. So mathematically, there is nothing to distinguish uh, between... Uh, a collection of images versus a video sequence, if you will, like a moving camera, let's say. So I find some congruence with uh, what uh, Rajan said a little while ago. It's in terms of this distinction of uh, still and moving being one of degree rather than in qualitative kind. Um, You could draw a similar kind of inference if you just look at it um, in mathematical terms, in terms of abstraction of relationships between images, which is looking at something, right? So whether you have... So a simple way of thinking about it is um, if you take uh, 100 people taking pictures of an object versus a person walking around with a video camera and taking 100 frames of the very same... They are the, the same, same thing. They are essentially... I mean, they are... Well, they are in... Um, they are the same kind of representation, if you will. So the notion of time that you may want to sort of bring in here comes in in terms of what role it may play. And if you want to make a distinction between a collection of images versus uh, a video, let's say, there is a notion of time that's um, that makes the distinction there. And so there it's a matter of what kind of interpretation you want to bring to bear on the collection of images or the sequence that you're talking about. So if you have um, the time playing a role of, say, temporal continuity, then you 
tend to, you know, your perceptual qualities and the attributes that you would want to extract or perceive from that sequence could be different. And that depends on what you want to do with the information that you have on, on hand. So if you had to reconstruct um, a 3D moving scene, let's not call it an image, and you had to do it via several uh, 2D images, mm -hmm. it's entirely possible? Uh, well, it is possible uh, provided we... So so let me just back up a little bit to, sure. to put the context in place so that uh, we are quite clear. So uh, one of the distinctions we should make is between human vision or human perceptual capabilities and computer, what computer vision sets out to do. Sure. Uh, there are some similarities, but we are not necessarily trying to mimic the same kind of processes or mechanisms. Uh, mechanisms, but we also not necessarily, firstly, we don't fully understand all aspects of human uh, vision per se. We do have a fairly good understanding. I mean, people who work on, in those uh, intersectionally related disciplines uh, of cognition, neuroscience, psychophysics, and so on and so forth. But in computer vision, we are trying to sort of understand how to build similar perceptual capabilities in a machine. Now, to come to the specific question you had in mind, um, clearly, yes, you can um, build a 3D representation of the world, if you will, that you're looking at um, with a collection from a collection of images. And that's one of the key uh, ideas that sort of emerged in my area in computer vision, uh, you know, in the early 90s, where people recognized that it could, uh, this relationship, the understanding of the space that you are, you're in uh, is mediated through the images that you see of it, right? I and mean, that's the only sensory access that you have to the space that's there. And a key ingredient in that mediational process is the relationship between the cameras themselves. And we'll get to that, yeah. Venu. I think the question is that even as you're looking at that situation, does it matter whether the cameras are moving and the scene itself as objects which are moving? Or or is that of no, no consequence whatsoever as far as the process and the mechanisms and, and, and your layout design? Or so, so in go? principle, there is nothing to distinguish between one versus the other, like, like Rajan alluded to earlier about the moving train and you being, you know, so there's a notion of the relative motion involved here. So what really we are recognizing is that you can recover relative motion. Mm -hmm. uh, now, of course, if there are multiple types of motion in, in, involved in a scene, so if you're looking at a very busy road, with many types of vehicles moving around, or if you look at a beehive, for example, there the complexity of the underlying representation may be much harder uh, because you have many more degrees of freedom, if you will, to account for. But uh, the underlying principles are just the same. Right. You know, so you could just sort of segregate it out into, say, the simplest way to think about it is the world, if you think of the world as being rigid, let's say, you yeah. know, as still, yeah. and you're moving in that. Yeah. And now all other variants can be sort of subsumed into this categorization in one way or the other. Are these different things for you, Orko? I Just think I, I, I agree on on a lot of the things that we've been discussed, but I'll, I'll speak about two words. One is uh, the idea of an approximation and the idea of an illusion. Mm -hmm. So when you're essentially when you're looking at the moving image and the still image, the moving image tech, tech technologically is comprised of a composite of still images but if you if you look if you take them together uh, if you say for example have shot a second of video 
It's a collection of still images which do not necessarily comprise that one second. But for the human eye, it creates the illusion of the second because the, the human eye cannot look, cannot distinguish after a certain point, right? But that has to do with, you know, I think uh, Venu alluded to this a little bit, our, our neurological limitations and it our is. granularity so, and so, so on. So essentially, that creates that illusion of having something, dis- something which is... Uh, a, fluid, continu- a, a continuum, continuity when it a is continuum not. whereas actually it is a set of discrete uh, images and I think that is essentially where the magic of photography and the still image and the and the idea of the moving image lies because it's essentially in that in that crux in those little gaps that the you know uh, and also like I think it's it's where the, the magic really essentially lies in the fact that the it is the we are creating a whole which is greater than the sum total of its parts essentially. So using the neurological limitations of uh, of our visual capabilities. So yeah, just to get back to the thing, technologically is the same thing, but on an aesthetic level, on a philosophical realm, it's definitely very different things. So what exactly is lost when when you capture the three D world on a two D plane? What is lost, Venu? So, firstly, the notion of so the, the the 3Dness, if you will, for lack of a of a simple with depth episode. and all of that. So, so the notion of depth is lost, right? So, for example, imagine you have a holiday snapshot of you're standing in uh, you know in front of a large temple structure, let's say, or some monument. Um, now the relative uh, the the image that you see or you let's say you were watching it on a computer screen or a, or a physical postcard size image uh, the notion of depth information is gone there right we don't tend to think of it in those terms in a commonsensical se- manner because we always uh, um, sort of fill in if you will when we look at the image we have ways of interpreting the image for example but, but that's reification happening in our own heads I mean, yes so image. that's sort of what what you know technical terms would would be would constitute high level vision right hmm. that's that the idea that you're standing in front of something there is also a notion of what is the of the relative scales of the objects which are embedded in our of our prior understanding of the world uh, or the physical space that we inhabit right our expectations are set in in a certain sense and so we bring that to bear on you know uh, Cognitively, we bring that to bear on what we are sensing. But uh, if but, we were but, to take ourselves out of the equation right, so, and look at right, only computer right, vision, right. So, would it be able to say what's in the so front and what's behind? Of course not, because computers are inherently dumb, right? I mean, they they are going to, I mean, you're going to use a computer to be able to do the kind of interpretation that you want, which is which was, in some sense, if you look at the evolution of the discipline of computer vision, people thought that these high-level vision questions were easy to solve. So, you know, about 40 years ago, they thought it was a matter of a few years and they could figure it out. A college project, as they say, which Yeah, yeah. and yet we are still, you know, well, thankfully that's not happened. So, so many of us are still in business, if you will, right? Because um, constructing, um, well, I mean, there are, Relation. I mean, essentially, even defining categories of uh, concepts are very hard. So, but to come back to the question on hand, um, as a result, the focus in the last couple of decades has been more pragmatic, if you will, what constitutes what we would say low-level and mid-level vision, where we move from images to um, a rudimentary sense uh, understanding of the space that we are in. So, for example, if I have a monument, I can take uh, many images and construct 
a 3D representation of but, the monument. But, but you need multiple cameras. You do need multiple cameras. But the point I want to make is that now to make to go from that to a more abstract idea that this constitutes a mon- monument with a certain, let's say, aesthetic quality to that is not on the table as far as computer vision is concerned. No, right? but as far as, yeah. and it will make it more complex, right. and surely right. it's very complex thereafter, but if if one were doing it with only one camera... Right, you would yeah. never be able to recover depth information. So in principle, you cannot recover... Uh, the 3Dness of the world with a single image. So, what's the minimum number of cameras? So, the minimum would be two with some displacement, uh, you know, between the two cameras, which is the canonical example is our two eyes, right. which are set apart by some sort of an average distance, right? So, you need a minimum of two cameras. So, biologically, we have evolved in that sense. Insects have far more complex uh, visual pathways, but I mean, well, actually pathways in terms of the the retinal uh, image that is created. But uh, at the very minimum, you need two. But does but, it keep getting better as you keep putting more cameras? Uh, it keeps getting better in two ways. Firstly, we re- remember that these are, uh, you know, mathematically, um, if you that there should not be a distinction between using two or more. Um, if you are looking at the same surface, for example, if I'm looking at a coffee mug uh, or any object, uh, when I'm looking at it from the front, obviously I cannot perceive what is behind on, on the rear of the object, right? On the obverse side. Right. So naturally I have to move around or have the object moved. Uh, there has to be a relative movement between uh, between the, the observer and the observed, the camera and the object, so that you can actually sort of cover the entire space uh, the visual, uh, the visual sphere, if you will. The loop has to close around right. the object. Right. So, in, in some sense, right. So, so you need adequate coverage, if you will. But is that possible uh, with two cameras? N- no, no, seldom no, so. Right. Seldom so, because right. unless you have an absolutely flat object, right. um, there is always uh, a part of it that's not visible from a single vantage point or, or a couple of locations, right? So, this has got to do with again the the inherent complexity of the space that we are looking at. Mm -hmm. So, for example, like I'm holding out my hand with uh, fingers, you know, in some in some posture, now that's a very complex representation. Now, to be able to capture all of all parts of the surfaces, uh, you may need many, many more. Definitely, you'll need more than two, right? Is there something that approximates a law? Is there a way to say that for this kind of an object or obviously, let's say everything in a 3D kind of space, you need, I mean, is there a formula law which says that uh, no, this configuration or this number of cameras does it as far if 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 I need to recover the whole thing? So so there are laws which are very local in the sense that if I have a small part of the space, I can define properties that are are depending on the complexity of the surface that I'm looking at. I can define how many views are adequate to rec- represent it. But the world is actually confoundingly complex in its in terms of shapes, right? So. Um, so in other disciplines, people in psycho- psychology, for example, or psychophysicists rather, study this notion of viewpoint complexity. What is the inherent complexity of an object? Um, so we don't have, we have kind of rules of thumb at this point. Uh, we don't have uh, clear notions. So, so, so but basically, obviously the image is viewpoint dependent. Obviously. The images, so yeah, yeah, images. But what we would like to get to is an, is independ- object, itself. Is an object itself, right? So that you can reconstruct. Right. It. So the point is that the, the breakthroughs have been in understanding the relationship between the images themselves. Right. Right. And thereby use that interrelationship to understand what they are telling us about 
the world or the object that we're looking at. Uh, now, what you're talking about is actually an innate property of the object. You know, the, the, the degree of difficulty of reconstruction is, is essentially inherent that it is innate to the quality of the object, if you will. Does any of this resonate with you? Do these resonate with any of his struggles to capture depth of a scene, depth of an object? I mean, how do you go about doing this as a practitioner, Orko? Because one is to just look for the best vantage point and, and you know, go clicking. But I mean, the, the question in a way is that if, and it looks like if, if there was only one camera, then it's, I mean, of, psychologically you construct depth and so on. And obviously all photographs are looked at by human beings, so we're kind of okay. But are there strategies that you and your colleagues have evolved which helps one extract depth information a little bit better? I do not walk in the realm of reconfiguring to recover detail through like the superposition or the juxtaposition of multiple images. But in terms of uh, in terms of photography projects where you're, uh, I work on long term projects. So mm -hmm. on, on a lot of those, it is important to uh, find different vantage points to really show from distance. So like you go very close. So essentially, like we were talking about the slums today, for example, in Bombay. So I work on particular projects uh, along the rail tracks in India, in Calcutta, for example. And uh, for a long time, I was shooting along the rail tracks and for the last five years. And this year, I have been trying to look at specific high-rises that have come up along these rail tracks to find a different vantage point to give a different sense to the narrative that I'm trying to create. So as, as a photographer, as a practicing photographer or somebody working with photography, you're always in the search of these very different vantage points that play with distance and consequently uh, play with angles and uh, with depth. So that becomes, uh, that has become more increasingly a point of, uh, a point of departure for me. And, uh, you know, let's say these photographs that you create with exposure, with time exposure, you know, which obviously there is always an instant in which you click it, but, you know, there's no such thing as an instant. Um, so what exactly does exposure do to a photograph? Because in a sense, the photograph that you see that you develop in your lab or whatever uh, is not exactly an in infinitesimal instant, right? It's, it's, it's like maybe a second or two, depending on the exposure that, that a photograph gets. So I work on multiple, uh, I, w I work using multiple... Uh facilities let's say so a lot of my projects use the idea for flash mm -hmm. so at so i work prime a lot during the night mm -hmm. so with directed flash you can create a sense of depth and a drama and a separation between subjects to to bring about the possibility of course you're using the idea that the brain has an information that helps it to fill in the gaps um, but what does what the shutter speed I know it depends on the, the camera and so on. But. Well, I mean, the shutter speed depend. The shutter speed essentially is a very high shutter speed normally, so mm -hmm. around sixty or one twenty fifth of a second mm -hmm. for particular projects. And there one twenty fifth of a second. Yeah, uh, that's what you need to get like a fairly crisp image if there is some sort of motion around. And why are there some photographs that need exposure? Well, I mean, that's a technicality, so it depends. So if you're taking long, like a long multiple seconds exposure, that's to, if you're looking at, say, a night space, and you're not illuminating it with external light sources, and you want something in very good definition, where there is less light, 
you use a long exposure so if if there were to be a 2 second long exposure photograph is that the same as you know 240 of these whatever um fractional exposure photographs no i don't think the approximation the additions it's not uh, the accumulation does not work that way do you know what But, i mean venu yeah so uh if i may interject so it um yes and no is the answer if you will i mean technically yes you are accumulating light integrating light over a certain period of time yeah right but there is this this is the other notion of the dynamic range of the intensities that you're looking at so for example imagine you have a dimly lit room in a bright window so and now if you were to take a single exposure so what we'll have is that you'll create an imbalance of the lighting like orko will know this much better than me in terms of his practice so any photographer who has a certain idea that he wants to you know draw out of out of the subject that he or she is looking at will have to find the balance in between different contrasts of uh, of in you know illumination or intensity that you have so so we have to understand that there is a range there's a physical limit below which you cannot perceive light and you know beyond a certain limit you're going to saturate right so you have to sort of operate there's an operational range and uh, any you know if i may say any creative photographer will have to sort of have a good sense of how to find a sweet spot for the purpose that um, he or she may have so if i may go back to one of the earlier questions that you were asking and then the distinction between say what we as computer vision uh, practitioners do and what say a creative photographer does is this notion of purposive vision right uh, mm-hmm. that is you know this notion of a vantage point when you're looking at it from and you're you're trying to create a certain impression because you want to direct people's attention or create a certain percept um based on where you're you know viewing an object from right but as far as you're concerned are you vantage point neutral so long so as we you are have... neutral right because technically the idea the pathway that so this is this is an older debate in the field right between purposive vision versus computational representations so you know there so there used to be an argument which has kind of gone away and might come back soon in in a new avatar um but the debate has really been about what is it that we set out to perceive and how we want to perceive it so when you so these are slippery concepts so one of the biggest issues really has been about defining what we want to perceive things for and what is the objective that underlies that 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 task so uh, to make matters somewhat more tractable in a mathematical sense we we have taken that out of the picture and so for example much of my work does not engage with those questions but clearly if you know if you want to go beyond where we are in in the field today uh the notion of a task specific or a purposive uh you know purposive uh, attention if you will has to be brought to bear on what we are doing so Is, so so there is so, so so. a loop closure in that sense in terms of concepts that will happen over a period of time if you will so rajan for you know you 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 brought in this idea of image for cognition and and, and things of that sort you know you you introduced the idea of dream somewhere so we'll get to that a little bit later are are those things vantage point dependent so the it will be very advantageous to give up on the idea of illusion I'm illusion illusion right uh it doesn't help us in the sense if the moment is already not there 
it cannot be appended to anything. So to think that when Bergson uses the term illusion, that he does it because he wants to emphasize that the perceptual world we have is constituted by our senses. Why does that happen? That happens because we need to act in this world. Hmm. So only as a plane of action that the speciality that we have is useful. And the, the computer vision is to help us act better, perhaps. You know, what, what other purpose would it serve? To improve our vision as such. It is to help us, you know, improve our vision and uh, act better. So in, in whatever context. So the purpose of uh, any of the, you know, the still photography uh, or so on, I would rather think as a, a mnemonic device. It's a, it's a device for memory. Uh, because memory itself, I mean, the photograph is only an extension of a word. Extension your, of? Your word. Yeah. Word is a mnemonic device. Yeah. We, we identify object and give it a sound image. And so that it, we remember that. Yeah, we give each other yeah. a sound image and so on. So like that. The all graphological exercises, including the photographic exercise, is also a graphological exercise. They are all helpful for systematizing memory. So a still photograph is extracting something extracting from that, and then from you elevate it to certain. That's right. And when it is aesthetically done and with, with an expert hand or so on. Absolutely. See, I would, from the discussion so far, I would like to uh, draw two important uh, uh, postulates here. Um, so one is that that the the word, the photograph, they are adding memory. It's like a, it's a born out of a certain systemic reference and inference. But a movement image is more like how our natural perception itself functions. And you asked about the so what is 2D, movement image? 3D difference. So the... the the difference between the th three-dimension and two-dimension, to my mind particularly, is the difference between the world as a field of action and the world as memory. Right. When it becomes two-dimension, it becomes a world of memory. That's how dreams are, right? So that then dreams are not 3D. Shouldn't be. If, if it this is, who knows? To say what dreams are. Dreams <laughs> are strange things, right? But we can assume that insofar as that dream is not exactly a field of action. It happens when you sleep. It is like, you know, it is whatever its 3D effect is like, even if there is a 3D effect, it will be like the 3D film, you have a glass and so on. But it's not actually three-dimensional. The three-dimension is given by the sensorium only as a field of action. So that the difference is in the two-dimension, immediately temporal. The moment image is the the main axis is time. Hmm. So that is why cinema is an art of time. Hmm. So the film narration, particularly, in trying to manage this malleability of time into a certain kind of articulation, certain kind of narration. 
So cinema is primarily playing with time and duration. Of Absolutely. course, there's lots of spatial ploys and so on. But Absolutely. So, I mean, uh, the, the cinema makes, uh, like, like the sculpture molding, does, does, uh, uh, you know, uh, a sculpture with clay. The film molds time into a narration. So Tarkovsky famously called his book Sculpting in Time. Yeah. So he was precisely to the point. So what a filmmaker does is to sculpt in time. And so this is the distinction. But in all the movement images that ensue, the the preponderance of cinema in um, uh, 20th century, we now have movement images coming into everything. Right? But all this, I, I, I would imagine, uh, increases the the temporal experience of life. So we have different kinds of times being played out, different experiences of time being played out. And, uh, you know, when I, when I come in the flight, one person next to me is watching an action film. Another person is watching a social film. The different kinds of time on both sides, you know, that I, if I look there, I, I experience time very fast. If I look here, I experience time very differently. So this is what is happening, interestingly, with the, the, the uh, inundation of life by movement image. It's also opening up this uh, several affective possibilities in which we traverse through many modes of temporal experience. Uh, that's pretty much it. And uh, I would imagine that, you know, uh, the, the, the use of still photography uh, will, will be very much uh, in juxtaposition to uh, movement now, particularly because it, it, it has this ability now, like, look at this moment. So this, this is the freeze frame. The freeze frame is like, it's all the more uh, uh, asking it, uh, for uh, attentive retention. Is it possible to capture motion through still photographs? Capture movement or convey a sense of sense of movement through still photographs? Sure, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I do I do not work in that realm a lot, but with uh, high speed uh, high speed photography, with uh, a lot of sports photography, that is their their entire effort is directed towards. Uh, capturing the sense of motion through a still image, and 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 as far as uh, the technique of it is concerned, is that just far faster shutter speed? You 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 it's just, also, just it's also taking in, a snapshot of a short well, of time. Well, it's also getting like preparing your intuitions, sharpening your skills to the point of anticipating the moment where that happens, where that point where you want that image comes. So. For, for getting those images, I think it's more of a physical process, really, to be very much at par with the physicality of the action that you're seeing, to, to really be able to capture that as well with the, with the cameras that you have at hand. Of course, cameras are getting faster and better now, so the, the, the image quality is getting better. You're getting crisper images of action and, uh, or even of like humming, humming birds flapping their wings, you know, which... Uh, just getting crystal clear images of that was 10, 20 years back, like not that easy to get apart from you were in, if you were in very high tech research labs, now you can do that with the cameras that are there. But and that's, 
But the notion, the affect of uh, of movement, if you will, could also be induced the other way. Right? I was where coming you, to that with yeah, the slow, so, with slow yeah. shutter speed as well, right. which which is where which is similar, which is closer to the realms that I work in, where you can work with a slow shutter speed to have an imprint of motion across a few milliseconds or a few seconds even, and to create. But there would still be a series of photographs. Ah, it's it's considered as an image. So, but an image where the exposure, the shutter is open for a longer time. So it, the imprint is on the sensor or your negative of a particular person moving or an object moving. So it would be like a phased object. It could or... be. I'm saying like you could have the 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 sense of uh, the sense of uh, motion so can be captured on both of these. Yeah, in a sense, but through, through in one imprint you can get. From using either very high shutter speeds or very slow shutter speeds, you can get a sense of. And as far as you're motion. concerned, is there something between the still and the moving image? I think uh, what I find very interesting in today's world is the idea of how the the gifs are used in popular social media currency. It's become the, it's kind of become the dominant mode of exchange for a lot of people, where it's essentially an amalgamation of um, small. Of uh, of different images that are put together. They're very to make... short spans of time. Yeah, not yeah. exactly an instant. So in that sense, they're not a photograph. Yeah, but... they're not a photograph. I mean, at times they're animations also. But the idea of the image, but like the image which mimics a, a motion, but it's not. It's neither a photograph nor it's neither a still image nor a moving image. But it's it's There's derived some micro from movement the. Or... Yeah, it's a micro movement. It's a glitch. It's a you know. It's a it's it's in it it lives in that space in between. So for me, like right now. Uh, if we take another example of say um, back in the day you had color photography and you had black and white photography in film they were different independent right. processes right. and with them came independent ways of looking a different philosophy of things right but within the digital realm which is primarily where we are right now of course a lot of people still work with film uh, you are essentially living in a sense of an approximated space so the black and white essentially lives at the end of a spectrum, which is the absence of the color field, right? So, in that sense, the GIF also lives in that sort of approximative spectrum space. It's neither this nor that, but sort of caught in between. So, but it does have a little bit of a narrative structure. It that, does. It that does. Is, it, it's a is, bit. It's a bit. It's That's a why bit. it's not as. It's not. It does not take or demand as much attention as a full stretch of moving image might and that works perfectly well for the times we live in you know where it's not uh, it 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 i i kind of think it's very well suited to the uh, to the short span economy the short span society that we live in where does everything does it surprise goes. you that it works does um, it work for you like i find myself using you? them increasingly because other people i communicate with use them increasingly as well so does it surprise you, Rajan, that it works? You know what we're talking about. We're talking about GIFs, right? These super short, uh, super short duration images, sometimes with text appended to it and so on. Does it surprise you that it works? Not all. Not all. Um, no, I think, uh, I mean, the, the, the allure, that's a certain uh, allure about the movement itself. Uh, that is, uh, I would imagine, is because of uh, the affective experience of time involved. 
But uh, as much as we still use language very profitably, the still would be still be very useful. As you know, so I was trying to draw this distinction between photograph as a word and moment image as a articulation. Articulation is not a, a syntactic sentence necessarily. Right. So there were attempts to think of film syntax, but it could be There's, it could be iconic. It could be yeah. an icon, right? There is you cannot strictly do a film syntax. It is not. It is not like it won't lend itself to grammar. Uh, so this, but then it, it tries to tell us something, but what it is telling us itself is an extraction that we do. I see a whole lot of images, and I make the story in my head. Right. This is where the psychoanalytic theory of cinema is very invested. So it is like an intersubjective plane in which I see something and I make it out. I have this capacity to make a story out of whatever images I see. So that is effectively, you know, also kind of uh, uh, triggers this my my experience as temporal. And I think that would be the reason why GIF would like kind of, you know, it's a small, small, you know, uh, a drop of time uh, that that moment generated is like a, a, a drop of time that is uh, so you taste it or whatever. Do you think uh, moving images of films are in, intrinsically they give more pleasure than still pictures? Not trying to make you choose one over the other, but just the way we are wired and so on um, is are moving images some, somehow more satisfying than still ones? Because because a lot of the reason for, and obviously that there's 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 a technological journey that has brought us where we are, and obviously we'll keep going wherever we'll go, and we'll talk about it hopefully, you know. So you were talking about color photographs and black and white photographs being different, and obviously moving pictures were very expensive to do, and so on and so on. But if all the technology were at were at our disposal, would still photographs still stand? I know you you privilege something out to extract something. There's a moment. There's an aesthetic judgment, and so on. But isn't isn't that closer to how we think? Aren't, aren't moving images closer to how we think? The 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 what the moment image does to us is to make us experience time effectively, right? right. At the same time, the retentive element uh, is not there. You know, it 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 goes away. It it moves. Yeah. So, but it, the, the whole so idea that, that, that was for it to be like memory. For retentive memory, I need the still. So that's why all the filmmakers work with still photographers around. So this still photographer keeps on making still photographs when the shooting is on, because it is always lovely to have that you know the retentive moment. You arrest that moment and have a picture of that. So retentive memory, like like words we learn that, you know, the grammar we learn, how helpful it is. So this retentive image is also like that. So we, we cannot give up our desire for the retentive memory also. Do you see them serving different purposes? Or again, I'm going I back think, to you. I think they again. work in different aesthetic regimes. Uh, and uh, I find it like where it comes together is, again, the clue I think lies in the idea of like some of my favorite filmmakers, of course, with Kubrick and Tarkovsky and... We can say Shoto Itra as well. Like they all come from a very strong, principled photographic uh, understanding, and 
they kind of built upon that to make the grand works of um, cinema that they made in the end you know like uh, a lot of their trajectories because they mounted like paintings and I think the they set it up as like they used the photography the the fo- a photograph has its own very strong intrinsic power mm-hmm. it 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 holds your gaze in a way that uh, the moving image cannot Why? or because it's essentially it's a it works on the regime of the memory so it it affects you very primordially like it it it, it goes it 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 uh, it affects you at a very it affects you at a deeper level you know and you can actually like when you see um for example uh, why know, like, why slash how i i in the sense like uh, rola barth talks about in his book about him seeing his mother's image of when his mother was very young and he go, he write, he goes on to write an entire book on that but like just looking at that face uh, he he find he finally finds the essence of what his mother was you know and that's the kind of power that an image can hold is that because it makes you focus is that is it, it works it, on deeper is, levels is it, is it just that? Ask, i mean perhaps part of the issue here is uh, the notion of affect being evoked right so if right. you have an image uh, now you're going to evoke different affective responses based on whatever you know you capabilities have. each or or understanding or prior knowledge that each individual yeah, carries yeah. whereas the temporality that film brings in probably ties many of these you know sort of narrows down the the scope of affective responses right yeah. everybody so, so there's a more shared narrative if you will is yeah, that would that be a reasonable thing I to say i think we can think of this in terms of geometry like if it's a point you have an entire space to explore around but if you have a set of images which make up the film then you have to you're stuck along that narrative but like is, that, is that is that is that is that because it doesn't have a center a, a moving film is that because um i know the why question is very difficult i totally get it but Okay, I mean, you 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 spoke of aesthetic strategies, or for what would you go towards a moving image? So I can a... give you an example. I for me, it's a it's a it's a question of politics, really. Hmm. So I will uh, I could give you an example of this work that I'm working on with picnics. So I have been working on that for five years, and the photographic project is an exploration of the socio. Uh, it's it's an exploration of the environment, how the how very. Um, how very pristine environments are left with a very strong human impact but so again the a, question is why photograph still photograph over yeah yeah so in the photographs you i'm looking at the environment and i'm looking at social interactions between people so i'm looking at social societal norms and the environment and while i was doing that i realized that a lot of the what i was seeing could not be captured in in film uh in on on in in the photograph in shot, yeah. so i started working on a video project of that so i'm that's what i'm focusing on right now and the video project has become more of a political uh project just to give you an example i have this um i have this sequence of a group of boys dancing at sunset along the river it's a very beautiful space uh which could have made a beautiful image but now we have the sound and we see and it all comes together but they're dancing to a song 
which is a a song which propounds the Hindu Rashtra state. Like it propounds the idea of a Hindu state as a techno trance remix. So is that and is that is that because the moving images can be multimedia? You get to add other things. It's not it. just that, but it brings together like it 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 it. it it's multi sensorial. It's right? multi sensorial, of course, and uh, that evokes different things. But at the end of it. for me like it brings in the zeitgeist of the time in a very strong way hmm. so the project becomes like like the the picnic in video becomes a reflection of the times we live in and you know so and if you were doing it via still means you would need some kind of an icon or a flag or something to kind of allude to that but yeah, you, it would yeah. be difficult to be explicit about yeah that's not how i mean generally that's not how i like sure, not sure, to, sure. yeah so i work with in the fo- in the photographs i work with quieter moments and you know like just seeing how it's the relations between people and in the video you can actually look at broader so it's the idea of like for me it's the microcosm that i explore in depth with photography and in the video it's the macrocosm and the broader structures of the current uh, so so current socio political situation that we live in that can find form in so is it a simple complexity point that the moment it's they, they look at different things Mm. they look at they very much for me look at different things at times like for in the example of this particular project this is how it's very well distinguished for how example. easy is motion to detect you know is it straightforward um you know obviously there are surveillance cameras and this and that um is 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 motion detection a straightforward solved question in the engineering domain um well so that depends again you can get into definitional questions of what constitutes motion i mean mm. if we start with the earlier abstraction that we had where everything is in flux mm. right so everything is in motion in that sense but if you leave that apart uh, there are strict technical ways of defining what is detectable right so um and the limits to that would be governed by the would be governed by these uh, the capabilities of your sensor so for example if you have um, uh, video so for example the frame rate at which you capture video would determine your ability to actually detect motions on very small time scales let's say uh, of late there's been very interesting work on what's known as motion magnification mm-hmm. so that's that doesn't quite work in the 3d sense but what mm-hmm. it does is it takes uh, small temporal changes in a vid- in a video and amplifies them in a consistent systemic fashion so that now it's much more easily perceptible to what does that uh, mean it's so like the equivalent exam- of slow motion uh, no it's equivalent of magnifying the size of the scale of the motion so for example uh, my you know we can probably add a, a pointer to online examples uh, on your show page for this uh for this instance so for example when you when the blood is flowing through your body uh you are you know you are actually moving right physically there are right. minute motions that are induced by the physical flow of blood right and uh so for example if you look at your veins on your arm uh we wouldn't when you stare at it with the naked eye you don't perceive that motion yeah that you can actually recover it uh, yeah. using computational means um so there is a diff- that's a different kind notion of motion where the observer is fixed if you will um uh, the my work has largely got to do with the moving observer per se you know um so there again it's it's the degree of difficulty is determined by the scale of or how fine grain you want to get to you know 
obviously the smaller any perceptual change you want to detect, the harder it is in principle, right? So you need to sort of define the boundaries within which, the realm within which you can operate. So yes, motion can be detected, um, but we need to understand what is the the scale at which we are operating at. And the sense in which you've been using the word camera, is that the, is that the laymanish sense or it's a specific... Um, a specific kind of sense. So it has a it has a rigorous mathematical sense, mm-hmm. but actually the layperson understanding is quite close to it. It's basically the uh, for conven for mathematical convenience we can interpret uh, almost every commonly used camera as a pinhole camera with a few things added on it, uh, and it's a it's a very good approximation to the physical complexity of any uh, actual image capture device, uh, unless you're looking at very complicated things like, uh, uh, you know, an omnidirectional camera or so. We're not talking about that. But if you take your regular cell phone cameras or your still photography cameras or even a a movie, professional movie camera, uh, to a very good degree of approximation, you you can treat it as a pinhole model. And then your mathematical abstraction is entirely grounded in that pinhole model. Because that lends itself to very rigorous. So there's a point where the image is captured. Right. So there is basically the the optical center, if you will, of right. the camera. Right. So essentially, what you're doing is you're taking the 3D world around you, and you're slicing it into rays which pass through the optical center. And so, for example, I mean, so these are what technically are called equivalence classes in projective geometry. So what you're doing is you're privileging a particular viewpoint or, or location rather. And in a sense, the image is captured at that point. Yeah, the image is essentially a slice of of that particular, you know, the, the bundle of rays, if you will. Imagine you have a, you have a, you have a knot in right. space right. and you have spokes or you know you have a hub and you have many spokes going out these are rays and think of putting beads on them right right so so you have all of those points on that ray or the spoke are are the same as far as the view of that part as far as that particular viewpoint is concerned so an image is just happens to be uh, one representation of the of the of the different but in this bundle analysis method or whatever else you call yeah. it the 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 object that you see is essentially pointillistic it's like comprised of many many points yeah so that is also again out of convenience because for example if i'm staring at a blank wall yeah. let's say right with no texture on it then it is uh, ambiguous in terms of for example there are lots of of its attributes that i cannot recover by even if I look at it from multiple viewpoints, I see. For so example, if you had if you had um, images from multiple viewpoints of a wall, then you it cannot. Would be you impossible cannot, to recover you, the wall. You, so so if I have a perfectly white wall and I move around with the camera just looking at different parts of the wall, I cannot tell them apart. So I cannot recover computationally. Motion. Computationally, yes, but even yeah. perceptually, I don't. Of course, think, perceptually you know, we can't. But yeah, computationally also, unless unless you have slight Some deviations markers. from that ideal uh, representation some markers, some some markers, center, right some so so you need something if you will for you know to put it in simplistic terms you need something interesting going on there right you need some texture in the text you know in the world out there for you to be able to perceive it and and and, and if if one thought of this with you know infrared cameras or thermal right. cameras or whatever i know only yeah. the word camera is common they do very right. different things yeah. um, th- there the way the image is captured is not the same bundle way, right? Or, no, or, or not, is it? no, no, it wouldn't. In fact, actually, even for uh, just to be technically 
correct. Even your cell phone camera does not quite do that. I mean, there is a difference between how technically a cell phone camera operates versus a regular camera with a single exposure shutter. Uh, so there's what's called a rolling shutter principle that's used in a cell phone. But we can get away with doing reasonably good approximations because we have to distinguish between understanding what... So, 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 so the key distinction between what we have been talking about here for a while now and what uh, us as engineers and scientists are interested in is, is the difference between the affective a response that is evoked versus, um, let's say, an invariant property of the space that you're looking at, right? So what is actually tactile and tangible, if you will, that we can capture so that then you can understand it independent of what the observer is doing. And so to go back to your thermal infrared uh, camera question, um, so firstly, it's not very useful for doing sure. the kind of 3D that we have because you don't have too much distinctive too many distinctive features or variations there. Yeah. Uh, so, but it's useful for certain kinds of purposes. Yes, you can do certain kinds of things. But when we are talking about cameras, in my context, we are talking about ordinary, you know, com in the common range of usage, if you will, you know. Um, uh, or, for example, we'll also rule out, say, something like a medical uh, and sure. like an MRI image, right? It's sure. an image, but it's a it's reconstructed from a different. Modality it's of It's not operation. an image for Deleuze, or is it? I don't know. I think it is. It is. It is. Uh, this, uh, all the images do have a purpose, right? I mean, like, uh, if I cross my eyes also, I have images. The images is part of the sensorious experience. It's not only the, the optical. So I make sense of the space. I make sense of what is uh, outside me uh, or wherever I am located. It is very useful to think of other species. How does a lizard make sense of where it is? Um, so I, I constantly say this whenever I speak of this. I, as a child, I went into a old house bathroom and I switched on the light. A lizard was trying to, uh, you know, eat up a cockroach. The cockroach was still. Maybe cockroach was sleeping. The lizard has a certain sense of how to pounce on a cockroach. They don't need human and light. Goblet. <laughs> so I was very fascinated. I, I went into the bathroom, but I stopped still and wanted to see what happens. But once it managed to capture, <laughs> then I couldn't see that I came out and... Uh, uh, whatever. But the point is that do they make sense of me when I enter? I switch on the light. I'm a huge figure. I walk in. <laughs> the lizard is hardly bothered. So since then, I, I, I think that, you know, a lizard sensorium sets up the place in a certain way where it knows what it needs. So our human sensorium is also very much like that. We are different kinds of lizards where our own plan of action is set up by our sensorium. So in that sense, every kind of image that we are able to make with whatever devices is only to kind of augment the you know plan of action. So insofar as we are able to do that, these are extensions, add-ons, and so on. Basically, we want to act in the world. That's are why there, we do all this. Are there scale limitations to 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 the kind of things that you want to do with so, computer yeah, vision? So actually, depends on I mean, so, camera, so, so what, this, that. So but, what what Rajan uh, alluded to now is actually has been was rather a critique of 
the attempts in computer vision a while ago by largely by philosophers and and, and psychologists so there is a well known critique of pure vision if you will right of the kind of vision that i do um while that is actually quite on the mark in the sense that when he talks about the sensorium there is also the interaction of the different perceptual senses that we have right but we i think in have... technical terms uh, what 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 computer vision is trying to do is to create a representation as opposed to image in the sense in which he yes that's that. true but that but the point is that is that doesn't mean that that's actually just one uh, stop along the way of eventually you might want to get to that affective uh, part affective well. part where you can actually integrate these things but the point is they have to be this this integration has to happen you have to build on a, a principled understanding of what these right. representations are right is and that so that's where we are so so, so it is uh, it's tractable in so the biggest issue really is that If because for, we get into theory of mind and all that right yeah but you can even uh, even duck that complexity uh, and just look at um, you know the world is very complex and the nature of interactions is very complex so when you look at it so in terms of uh, you know the affective response and so on and so forth uh, that's that's fine from an aesthetic or a perceptual viewpoint uh, when you want to let's say to to put it crudely let's say you want to axiomatize how you know these you want to derive some general principles on which you can build these things they seem to be very elusive because of the over, the huge array of possibilities that exist out there in the world right of possibilities of action possibilities of the types of motion that you have it's 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 so today so, the ability so, of capturing affective content right. is zero no it's not it's not that's not that's not what i'm suggesting at all what i'm suggesting is that it is it can so a lot of these questions can be addressed if they are limited to a specific context mm -hmm. where the context is understood so the range of so let's let, let, so let what do you have in mind let's come up with something uh so for example okay so what so let, uh, let let's let's take the question of uh, you know a favorite sport in india cricket right mm -hmm. so if you have a fast bowler mm -hmm. clearly you would need to do horrendous computational analysis to be able to figure out how the ball is going to come in terms of the physics of the action right right but very good most good batsmen are able to you know tackle the fast moving ball quite often quite right. well right. now so there is something that is again in an integrated kind of response if you will right. uh, much of it is evoked isn't it because it i cannot imagine you know i i cannot imagine all of that being figured out in that moment right, right. so uh, so the point is that there is a specific context in which that individual uh, a specialized player has trained for so you can you can imagine doing something similar where you specify the range of possibilities you know in general lots of interpretations are lots of sensory stimuli are inherently ambiguous and that's something that we did not refer to earlier while they they do evoke strong responses there is an inherent ambiguity to an image per se right in in terms of what it says about the the actual physical world that it is a representation of and part of the problem or the slippery part of it has been to be able to nail down that ambiguity so one way of tackling that is to actually take multiple images where then you can actually recover physical attributes of the world which are no longer ambiguous right but on the other hand if you really look at um, say temporal kind of sequences right so you can you can uh, you can for example train a robot to take or carry out very minute uh, fine grained actions 
based on the stimuli. But then if you were to put it in a very different context, it might not work as well. So it is not to suggest that the, the um, you know, capabilities of purposive or active vision don't exist. Uh, it is just that the focus has largely been on deriving things which are more general or generic, if you will. Uh, and we are slowly building towards that. For example, one of the common things that many people in the field are interested in is this whole business of, of autonomous driving. Yeah. And there, of course, you know, there are, so it is complex, but nevertheless, it's in a limited sense of but the... But all the inputs can be grouped and categorized and so well, on. Well, yes and no. I mean, it, so there is, a, there is an inherent complexity... And unless you understand what, unless you can have a full grasp of what the inherent complexity is, you can't full, claim to have addressed it in its fullest. So, for example, many of these systems fail when you have people don't behave the way you expect them to behave, sure. right? So, so that's where the ambiguity, I mean, a different kind of ambiguity lies. Sure. Uh, but so one way to bypass all of this is to get to invariant properties of the world per se, you know. Yeah. So that's sort of what where we are at. But that does not mean that we are not eventually or the discipline as such should not be interested in in affective vision it it very much is it, it was and i think it's going to come back in, in a different form in some time soon are yeah. you okay with that rajan do you think the world has invariant properties absolutely absolutely i think see, the, uh, there is a extractable uh, plane of consistency uh, that helps us to go by so i mean any geometrical perception itself. Insofar it it helps us to do things, it, it is it's fine, right? In that sense, I would really think that I mean it is definitely possible to extract, postulate, and develop you know machines. And but the pace bowling example that Veno gave is very interesting because one of my friends worked on that. It is how the bowlers look at the ultra slow motion motion capture of their hand and how they train, and so on. Uh, but still, as you rightly said, that uh, the alacrity with which the batsman could respond is also out of a, a whole complex computational possibility of perception. So, but this, uh, the affection, uh, the affect, is the, uh, the mysterious junction box here. Mm. So, how much we are alert, how much we are able to compute, how much we are able to focus. It's about intensities and flows, you know, the very favorite terms of Deleuze. It's about what kind of intensities I bring to a moment, uh, you know, that I'm able to quickly uh, process, respond, and so on. Separate signal yeah, from noise, so, yeah. know what to... So what's the future? Where is, where is all of this headed? What's the future of... Images, what's the future of uh, still and moving images? Is the future all animated? Well, I think, I mean, uh, the... I know our the, sensorium is changing. That's right. Uh, and so you made the, that point the, a few times. And, in the, neurologically uh, speaking, an increased exposure to movement image, I believe, uh, can possibly lead to different kinds of circuits opening up. Uh, uh, in the you know uh, whatever our machine the body is, and can help process things, whatever faster and so on. On the other hand, when you watch like um, certain kinds of uh, you know uh, visual narratives, 
it can also dull your brain or sedate your brain and so on. Those, those kinds of worries are also there. So we, we don't yet know where, where the trigger is. But can uh, the, our familiarity with the movement image per se, I mean, uh, that increasing uh, exposure to movement image in various kinds of surfaces around us, does it lead to a very changed kind of a, a sensorious belonging, innervation, and thinking differently? I think it definitely does. And uh, so, if anything, that uh, the the retentive power of the still should even more be valuable now because this is also this 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 cannot replace that. So, in that sense, I think there is no competition between these things. And to, to, you know, though a difference of uh, uh, degree. It's very important that both these are around to serve different purposes. But I think the future is definitely uh, a very different kind of a sensorious belonging of. Do you think uh, there's a competition between the two, Orko? Between the still and the moving? What is the future, the way you see it? What is afoot in your world? Because you're the practitioner here. I'm the practitioner, so I mean, I, I, I my plan is to tread both uh, with to hedge these. your bets and be in both. No, no, just hedge my bets because uh, I think as I think both will exist and both will increase. Like the we are moving into increasingly visual worlds, so um, there is need for both. And at times, this like the still image would help to tell what I want to say better. And at times, it's the it's the moving image which helps my my for me it's it's the idea of like being able to say what i want to say and at times it's either of them that make more sense and at times it's a combination of both that help me present or, or present my my vision in a more in the most effective way in the world of course i think uh, both of them are going to increase at a as we've been seeing in the last 5 6 years with the way social media has sort of incorporated the 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 visual through Instagram and through Snapchat, both of them. Do you think have been... uh, there's something else around the corner? Because uh, you know, obviously, until photographs came by, I know you could say that dreams are a cinema of some kind. But do you think something else is around the corner? Obviously, we think of moving images and still images, and you've spoken about gifts a little bit. I think there is the, the realm of the of the fleeting image. So it's the it's what a lot of youngsters use which is Snapchat it's something which even like my people at 30 do not really use you know but people between people from 10 to 25 so what do fleeting images do of course one knows what it is but why does it exist in the world for that brief while the ephemeral image right yeah I think it's uh, with it's again with the it fits very well with the times that we live in. People are becoming more aware of how images can themselves proliferate and because uh, it's the opposite of uh, the still image, which you mentioned serves a mnemonic purpose in a sense. You know, it, it does something to your memory. What does this do? It 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 helps it helps create Probably an impression it, and then it disappears. It has so, only affective content and it goes yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. Does is there any residue of that at all? I don't know. I think it's a it's a reflection of uh, of what the of of the fact that people are very aware that both the still and the moving image, if it circulates by itself, can have harmful ramifications for their lives. Mm-hmm. And it's a reflection on that that the fleeting 
But image. that's a tactical purpose. I think I think it needs to I think it needs to be brought into account in the way that it's being used by a lot of people. Why do ephemeral images exist? I mean, does it surprise you? Terms like ephemeral or risky. It's like illusion. <laughs> So we don't know. No, again, no, but they so exist for a few seconds and go. What so is well, permanence you, 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 and so on? So I'm not very sure that we can make a, any comment on that. But in so far as see, the the, it's very important to consider uh, the whole of our living as a plane of action. Right. So, what is not immanent to that? We should not worry about, but somehow in language, <laughs> somehow in philosophy, we have come to have this, you know, investment in non-ephemeral or permanence and so on. I don't know whether that is helpful at all. Right. So in that sense, this is this is all. I mean, you know, the the plane of action is what the whole life is. So in this sense, how do these things are immanent to action is what is. Very important, and also like uh, the uh, the the whole of uh, you know the uh, artificial intelligence, computer vision, and so on. In so far as they are all, they're, they're not. I mean, whatever they use, whatever extractable uh, plane of consistency they use, like proportions, ratio, mathematical, and so on. These are all part of uh, the possibility of the plane of action itself, as far as. The way I see that. That's, That's the science. anthropologist in you, Rajan. Huh? That's the anthropologist in you. Good going. This is the anthropologist. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I, I mentioned Deleuze. Of course, there's a lot of uh, his work too in this. Sure. Uh, What's the future, Venu? We'll we'll end with you. Are there one or two open questions that help us crack this? Uh, it's uh, uh, it's kind of early days right now, in because in the sense that. Uh, we have. I know you've spoken of this affective business and uh, yeah, the but, but even from there. you know, if we were to forget the technical challenges that lie ahead, uh, which are of great interest to people like me. Um, so, for example, one of the outcomes of being able to this ability to to do this three D reconstruction business, if you will, is uh, which we didn't talk much about, is the fact that you now you have a spatial dimension of very large scale too. Mm. So you can t you can actually integrate, for example, you know, large numbers of images uh, and and into one um, integrated representation. So that it's it's as if you have presence, you know, simultaneously, right? To to grasp multiple attributes in a large spatial region. Uh, would you know essentially is a cartographic exercise if you will people have done this in the past like uh, in a way you could have a let's say a live map of the world at all points in time you yeah but you know sense. in 3D right I mean you know so the moment you do that with all the embedded action and everything well else. yeah that may be a little uh, beyond the you know, sure. realm of or even say useful but uh, in very useful concrete terms, I mean, you know, there, there's a spatial dimension that opens up, right? And that's at, uh, the, the capabilities of being able to address these problems at very large scale have those potentials uh, in, inherent in them. And, uh, and of course, there is this entire uh, realm that which uh, we didn't uh, obviously get into is this whole idea of machine learning, which also can draw from a rich body of stimuli that is available to actually learn certain attributes which are uh, repeatable, if you will, of you know, actions or attributes which are repeatable in the physical world. So there is, yes, a large scale and you know, a realm of possibilities, 
but uh, and I wouldn't prognosticate too far into the future because um, you know we're not quite clear which way the field is headed as such. I mean. Terrific. No, I think that's a good note to end this on. It's challenging as it is, but thanks to all of you for making it, and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.